0: You will have to excuse me, dear. Kids today are not as settled as they used to be. No need for excuses, Mrs Rose. I'm just grateful for the time to speak with you. Your stories are going to be an excellent addition to our upcoming 15th anniversary release of Women's Weekly. Well, for starters, please call me Rosie. Everyone but the students call me that. After all, we are going to get into some quite personal stories, yes? So we might as well start on the right foot. Very well, Rosie. Can I start by asking where you were born? I was born in Newcastle, and I am not afraid to say when, as the students often guess my age as 70 years old, 1903 in Newcastle, 10 minutes from Nobby's Beach. As a kid, I used to love waking up to the sound of the waves, although it was a shame that my parents really had the time to take me there. My father worked at the docks, and my mother looked after the house and my three younger siblings. As for me, well, I was going to be the first person in our family that was going to attend public school, thanks to the efforts of Mr. Barton. Mr. Barton? Oh, heavens dear, our first Prime Minister! He championed the need for universal public education, and this became a pillar of our society. Here was an opportunity where I was going to be able to learn to read, write, and support a home just the way my mother did every single day. That was until the accident. Working at the docks was often dangerous business. One day, my father slipped from a gangplank while carrying some heavy cargo. He fell. Dad was not a confident swimmer, and so that cargo dragged him to the bottom of the bay. That was in 1913. I am sorry for your loss. Losing a parent at such a young age is just awful. Even worse, when you consider that Dad was the sole person responsible for earning an income for the family, it was only about a fortnight before the landlord kicked us out onto the streets. The only place we could go after that was to live with my aunt and uncle in Sydney, but my dreams of school would not be coming with us. I was given a job at a laundry at age 10, Well, when I say given a job, what I really mean is that Mum dragged me along to her nine-hour shifts, and I sometimes helped her move baskets up and down the halls. I hated that place. So much bleach and steam in the air that your eyes would turn redder than the irons boiling on the stovetops. Did things change when the Great War broke out? For employment opportunities and society as a whole? For some women, yes. Job vacancies at half-pay became available in some previously male-only industries, not to mention women were heavily involved in the manufacturing of care packages and equipment for our boys overseas, but people still needed their washing done. Apart from that, things just continued as normal. There were only a few protests against the calls for conscription and the imposed austerity measures of the Hughes government, but for most people, including myself, war seemed a world away. Then, once it was over, most just fell back into old routines. So, in your estimate, nothing changed for women after the war. Well, dear… For starters, we need to stop referring to women as one equal group, the same way that you would not conflate the opportunities of a boy from Wealth against a dock worker's son. Things were changing, but only at the fringes. That is where you always find the trailblazers, of course. When I left the laundry at age 16, to work in the home of one of these more well-to-do families, I saw exactly what the modern woman was attempting to be. The lady of the house, Mrs. Vale, was a flapper, you see. Not a complete flapper, the man of the house, Mr. Vale, would have never allowed every sacred boundary to be broken, but in his mind, I think to keep her away from his study during the day, he decided to indulge her. She wore lighter and loose-fitting dresses, with more freedom to play sports such as tennis. Mrs. Vale loved tennis, and she and her friends would spend the day playing sport, listening to jazz and reading magazines. This is where I learned how to read for the first time. You see, Mrs. Vale liked to be read to so she insisted I should learn how to do so, that she could soak up the gossip and homemaker tips while cross-stitching at the same time. This would have all been around the time of the Molly Meadows case in 1922, yes? Yes, of course, what a perfect example of how change was occurring only at the fringes, while society fought the shifts every step of the way, that poor girl in Western Australia. Meadows accused a man, Joseph McAuliffe, of raping her, and an all-male jury initially found him guilty. However, despite the fact that McAuliffe admitted to the rape, with his only defense being that the previous day Meadows had flirted with him and thus he had been promised intercourse, the guilty verdict caused outrage in the local community, and the rage was so great that a retrial was ordered. The second time, McAuliffe was cleared of the charges. You would have been too young, perhaps, to have heard the reasoning for this decision, but I heard the presiding judge said that if Meadows had indeed kissed and encouraged her attacker, as was reported, she could not be an innocent victim, and further stated that, if that is innocence, then the word has changed its meaning. This was the type of danger modern women were flirting with back in those days, and why it discouraged so many. The laws of the land move slowly, and attitudes even slower. How long did you work for the Vales? Until the crash. Mr. Vale was a banker, you see, and turns out spent most of his time in his study being careless, rather than being prudent with his investment diversifications. The Vales had to downsize, and that included firing me when they moved into their smaller apartment in Parramatta. Luckily, I was able to move in with Jack. We got married first, of course, in the white dress borrowed from my mother, and, oh, you should have seen him, so handsome in his old military uniform. Jack was a soldier in the Great War, and was new to Sydney when I met him. He was thirty-one. When I first met him, one day walking back from the shops with Mrs. Vale's latest collection of magazines, he was working down at the New Harbour Bridge site, moving steel for the welders. Our house was nothing flashy. We found ourselves in the shanty towns around the outskirts of town. That is where we had our first child, Robert, on December 12th, 1932. Sorry, dear, that might have gone off on a bit of a tangent. Not at all, Rosie. It's perfect. A love story is just what our readers are into. Speaking of your readers, I am aware thanks to the habits developed with Mrs. Vale, your company's first edition was released the year after Robert was born. With a piece about the smart women of Sydney, a little tone-deaf for the time, but what do you expect when you have magazines run by men writing escapism for women? Well, I am certainly trying to be less tone-deaf than my predecessors. May I ask if you paid any attention to the politics of the time? I can tell you that since the age of 21, I have never missed the opportunity to cast my vote. Jack would often tell me that simply voting was not enough and that we needed to get more political and ensure the Communists would not take over the country. I never really bought into all that stuff, not until he was called up for service again. He would have been quite old to be a soldier by that time. Yes, and that's why he was promoted to the officer corps. It truly was a blessing for our family in a way and allowed us to afford a small place in Pyrmont. He worked at the local barracks in the harbour from 1936. Those three years before Jack got deployed were some of the best times of my life. The depression was easing, Robert was a few years off starting school, and our second child Mary was well on the way. I spent most of my time perfecting our home and expanding my reading into all new types of books, which Jack and I agreed would be necessary for Robert's education. Shamefully, I must admit though that most of the books in the early stages were just for me. But I know that Jack didn't care, he was sweet that way. When the war broke out in 1939, where was Jack deployed? Singapore. Oh, Rosie. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean… no, no, it's okay. It was Robert's tenth birthday when we got word that the base had been surrendered to the Japanese. It's painful to imagine what he must have gone through. Even to this day I have no idea if he ended up in a camp, died on a march, or was worked to the point of complete collapse on some damn railroad. All I got was the same mass-produced letter as every other widow from Mr. Curtin. I I don't blame him, of course, Mr. Curtin was not the one that gave the order for surrender. What he did galvanized us during that tough time. His government introduced the Widows Pension Act in 1942, which I needed a great deal to meet the rent. He also pushed the Women's Employment Act that same year, which under the oversight of the Women's Employment Board facilitated the pathway of over 70,000 women into work over the next two years. I was one of them. Laundress, housekeeper, full-time mother, and now a secretary. The local munitions factory needed several people to manage the books and correspondence, I worked six-hour shifts in the office, transcription orders, learning to use the typewriter, and making coffee. It was thrilling to be around other women in a more intellectual setting. In the laundry, you never spoke about anything other than town gossip. In the office, you discussed the war, potential business improvements, and of course who was getting lunch with who. What did the managers think about your improvements? Oh, we never shared our ideas with management. That was not our place. We were in the business and doing fine work, mind you. But when it came to plans, well, the playbook was being followed to be the same as before. Back to the kitchen as soon as the men came home. Was there any pushback to this? Well, around 1943 is when I learnt about the Australian Women's Charter. Jean Street, its key contributor, demanded equal economic and political opportunities for women. And I heard that the group produced tens of thousands of copies of the document for distribution, Others pushed back more indirectly. If you were unhappy with your lot in life in Australia, some women decided to move overseas. Not on their own, of course. Their ticket was a ring from an American GI, and my lord, did that fire up the locals? That nasty brawl in Brisbane was the result of that. So, Rosie, I can see on the clock that the students will be back soon. So I have just one more question. How did you end up being a teacher? Well, when the war ended, I was almost like we had a future again. Jack was gone... Robert was 14 and Mary was 10. I was offered the opportunity to stay at the factory, which was going to be retrofitted for making auto parts, but I just felt like it was the right time to think bigger than that. I was now caught up in the ideas of Jessie Street well and truly, reading every issue of the Australian Women's Digest. Why should we be expected to suppress our skills and desires for education? Why are we only worth half the pay of a man? I need answers to these questions. So I decided to apply for work at the school we find ourselves in today a place where I can express my passions and look after the home and the family that Jack and I built. Right on time. Thank you again, Rosie, for sharing your experiences. I have no doubt the publisher will be thrilled. Do you have a title? The Life of a Rose.